Heavenly Father, we come to your word and we ask that you will speak. Holy Spirit, will you speak deep into our hearts that we might understand, teach us that we might understand. Give us wisdom, give us insight, give us understanding. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you will be honoured, that you will be seen, and that you will be glorified as we come to understand the truth of these words. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me share with you my one brush with fame. Uh, Matt Preston, who knows who Matt Preston is? Yeah? The guy with the cravat on MasterChef, place of origin. You know who I'm talking about? Matt Preston. Um, I was working in a cafe and I happened to serve him. Now, you have this picture in your mind of Matt Preston, all dressed up, neat and tidy with a cravat. My image of Matt Preston is a guy with shaggy hair, casual clothes, uh, and very down-to-earth. See, perception about people depends very much on your experience and interactions with them. What you perceive of someone, what you think of someone, depends on your relationship with them. You can't know someone just by watching them on TV. Reality TV is not reality at all, is it? It's a facade. And so we perceive people depending on how we interact with them and what we see of them and what we know of them. And that's the same of any relationship. You can live your life, go into school with someone only to discover they're a totally different person when they enter into the real world. Well, all the way through Mark, he has been trying to help us define our perception of Jesus. Right from the beginning, this is the gospel about Jesus, the Messiah. And Mark has been helping us understand, help us define, help us perceive who Jesus is. And we come, as it were, to the centerpiece of Mark's gospel. We have Jesus and his disciples, and they're going around to villages, around Galilee, around Caesarea Philippi. And as they're on their way, Jesus asks them, who do people say I am? Now, all the way through Mark, we've seen people with different opinions about who Jesus is. We see at the very beginning that they see this Jesus, the great teacher. And then we see him casting out demons, healing the sick. And people start building this image of Jesus. And so Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say I am? And they reply, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah and still others one of the prophets. And everyone has some idea or perception or opinion about who Jesus is. And uh, there was a fascinating uh, video that uh, the kids got to watch last week about what people, who people thought Jesus was. Uh, I think it was on the streets of New York, wasn't it? Um, it would be fascinating to watch. People have all sorts of opinions, and it's still the same today. You might go ask your Muslim friend and they'll say, oh, he was a great prophet. 
not as great as the prophet, but he was one of the prophets. But he didn't die on the cross, no, he was just a man. Or you might talk to a New Age friend who thinks that Jesus is the example of the Christ force or the, the God force that you can find in you. Or you might talk to your atheist or agnostic friends and they might say, oh, he was a a great teacher in history or a good man. But don't talk about the people who follow him. People have all sorts of ideas. A great teacher, a moral example, a man who reached enlightenment. People have all sorts of opinions about who Jesus is. Nothing's changed. And yet Jesus then turns around. It's like, it's nice what they think, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter speaks up, as he normally does. You are the Messiah. And you might go, he gets it. He understands. Jesus is the Messiah. But then Jesus turns around and warns them not to tell tell anyone. What's going on? We've seen this a few times now, haven't we? As we've gone through the gospel, Jesus has taught, he's exercised demons, he's healed the sick, and he tells them, don't go tell anyone. And here Peter finally gets it. You are the Messiah. And Jesus tells them, not to tell anyone. What's that about? Well, if we go a little bit further, we discover that actually Peter doesn't understand who Jesus is because Jesus tells him who he is and in verse 32, Peter rebukes him. He doesn't know. He got the right words, got the right idea, but he didn't understand who Jesus was. But what about you? As you sit here, as you listen to this, what about you? Who do you say Jesus is? Is he just a great teacher? Is he just a good example of a good person? Is he someone who can meet our physical needs, or even our relational needs. Who do you say Jesus is? Peter has walked with Jesus for two or three years at this point, but he still didn't know who Jesus is. Well, before we try and answer that question fully for ourselves, we should see what Jesus says, because he tells us who he is. Verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Do you know this Jesus, the one who will suffer, the one who will be rejected, 
and the one who will be killed. Well, Peter didn't like this. Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. Why is that? Why is it that Peter doesn't understand? Well, if you understand the Old Testament and what the Jews were looking forward to, this isn't what it was. They were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a Savior who would not suffer, but would instead save God's people. They were not expecting a Messiah who would be rejected, but one who would restore the kingdom of God. They were not expecting a Messiah who would die, but a Messiah who would defeat their enemies. Peter had this idea of who the Messiah was. But it didn't line up with who Jesus is. And it's easy, isn't it, to have an idea of who Jesus is. To grow up in church or to hear the Bible stories and to build this picture of who Jesus is. But Jesus tells us who he is. He is one who will suffer, one who will be rejected, and one who will die, but also one who will rise again after three days. And as we go into Easter, we need to remember why that is important. Because the gospel is not simply about the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's about his suffering and his rejection. Because that is the cost of the gospel. It is the cost of the work of Jesus to give us life. It's not simply his death and resurrection, but that he will suffer and that he will be rejected. This misunderstanding is so great that Jesus turns to Peter and rebukes him, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And here's the danger. And the danger is not so much what you think of Jesus, but the Jesus that you share with other people. Because one of the traps is that we make Jesus appealing. We try and make Jesus relevant. And we do our best. We want to show people who Jesus is. But there's a danger that we can present a Jesus that is concerned with human concerns, not the things of God. What do I mean by that? We can present a Jesus that is merely concerned with the things of this life. With people's jobs, with people's studies, with people's futures, with their kids. We can present a Jesus that is merely concerned with those things. But here Jesus reminds us that he is on a mission to accomplish something more. The things of God. And as we think about this question, who do you say Jesus is? Is this Jesus one who is merely concerned with human concerns, earthly concerns? Or is this Jesus one who is concerned with the things of God? Because they are two very different Jesus. 
They were two different people. And one is greater than the other. Who do you say Jesus is? When uh, we went to Taiwan, when the family and I went to Taiwan, uh, one of the things that I had to do was to learn Chinese. And in learning Chinese, my first thing that I had to do was unlearn Chinese. Because I had grown up speaking Chinese at home. But that wasn't Chinese. It was just me talking with my parents. Enough that we could communicate. I had to relearn my grammar, my vocab. I had to relearn all of that after years of growing up speaking Chinese. And so we can grow up with this picture of Jesus. We can go through Sunday school, we can grow up in church, and we can become familiar with this idea of Jesus. But the question is, do we know this Jesus for who he really is? Maybe there is some unlearning that needs to happen. Maybe there is a relearning that needs to happen. Because we want to see Jesus for who he is. And we're reminded here that this Jesus doesn't always fit the nice picture that we have. But instead, at the heart of the gospel and the heart of who Jesus is, is that he will suffer, that he will be rejected, and that he will be killed to rise again on the third day. Now that changes things. And there is a response that is required. But we're going to come back to that in a moment. Uh, so we have seen Jesus tell us who he is. But Jesus isn't the only one who tells us who he is. God himself tells us who he is. Let's move down to chapter 9. And here we have uh, the story of the transfiguration. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John to a high mountain, and there he was transfigured before them. I don't know if you've heard this word and whether you know what this word means, to be transfigured. To be transfigured is to be transformed into something greater or something more beautiful. It's like the ugly caterpillar that becomes this beautiful butterfly. But what we're told here is this transfiguration is unlike anything that we can comprehend. And Mark does his best to describe this. Jesus is transfigured and his clothes become a dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. This transformation, this transfiguration can't be captured in words. But we're also told that Elijah and Moses appear. And as you read this, you might be, what, what is this transfiguration all about? Well, let, let's highlight a few of the things here. As Jesus is transfigured, Elijah and Moses appear. Peter, in his fright and just 
completely gobsmacked, doesn't know what to say. He says, let's put up three shelters for you. I don't know if you've said anything dumb like that before. It's just like, uh, let's do this. And they're like, oh, that was a dumb idea. Well, Peter does that. Peter, Peter just opens his mouth and um, dumb things come out. But then a cloud appears and covers them. And this voice speaks. And it's, it's very short. This transfiguration is very, very short, but it is filled with imagery. See, Elijah and Moses are characters, people from the Old Testament. And the Jews knew these people and revered these people. Moses was the great prophet who gave the law. Elijah was the prophet who came at the end of the kingdom of Israel and warned them to come back to God and was taken up in a fiery chariot. These were great men in the Old Testament. But there's also something else about them. They are the only two recorded people in the Old Testament to have seen God's glory. I don't know if you remember, but Moses goes up to the mountain and he sees the glory of God. God appears to him. And it's not God face to face. It's his back. Moses seizes the back of God. And that left his face glowing for weeks. Elijah was afraid because the prophets were all being killed and he's hiding in a mountain. And he asks, he's he's talking with God and God says, I will appear to you. And I don't know if you remember the story, but there's the rush of wind, there's the great earthquake, there's this blaze of fire. And then suddenly this still voice and the appearance of God's glory. These two men witnessed the glory of God, and here they are with Jesus, again witnessing the glory of God. Peter's words may seem a bit odd, but they are also quite interesting, because what he, he says, let's put up three shelters, or three tents, depending on what your Bible says. And these are reminiscent of the tabernacle, the tent that the Jews, the Israelites would carry around in the, in the desert during the wilderness exodus. And the tent would be the place where they would meet with God. And here Peter unknowingly points to a reality that he does not understand. Here is Jesus the tabernacle, the temple, the, the house of God where people can come and meet God. And then you have the cloud. Again, it goes back to the tabernacle. And when the tabernacle was first built and when the temple was first built, and even when it was rebuilt the second time in Ezra and Nehemiah, the cloud fills the tabernacle. The presence of God is demonstrated in this cloud. The, p- the pillar of cloud that went before the Israelites in the Exodus. The cloud that covered the mountain as Moses received the commandments. God appears. He covers Jesus, Elijah, and Moses 
and he speaks. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Again, this is reminiscent of another event. Jesus' baptism. As Jesus comes out of the water, the spirit descends like a dove, and a voice from heaven speaks. This is my son, my beloved son, whom I love. Listen to him. Just in these short verses, God reveals to us who Jesus is. He is the glory of God that the prophets of the Old Testament pointed to. The glory of God that Moses and Elijah witnessed. Jesus himself says that Moses prophesied about him. And here they are, and they are talking with Jesus. Someone asked the other day, what what were they talking about? They are talking about what God is about to do. All the promises of God from the Old Testament through Moses, through to Elijah, and through the prophets, and now coming to fruition. What are they talking about? We're not told. But I can imagine the conversation. Here is the glory of God. Here are the promises of God coming to fruition. This is God's promised Messiah. And Moses and Elijah and all the prophets were looking forward to this day. The glory of God appears in Jesus. But also the tabernacle. If you remember back to Leviticus, the tabernacle, the temple, was the place where people could meet with God. And here Jesus is, and he will become the new temple. But not one built with stone, not one built by the hands of men, not one that is located in a physical place, but one that is present with God's people always. And Jesus is the one that we come to, to see who God is, to meet with him. And this is affirmed, this is confirmed and approved by God himself. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And if that's not enough, after all this happens, the three disciples, not understanding, ask Jesus, Why do the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? Well, Jesus replies, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done everything they wished, just as it is written about him. At the beginning of this gospel, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, it doesn't start with Jesus. It starts with John the Baptist. The one who will come before Jesus and restore all things. And he's come. He has come in the pages of time, in history. He has come. Not only that, the people have done to him everything they wished. And we read in Mark 6 that he is beheaded by Herod. He has lived the purposes and plans of God 
preparing the way for the Messiah. And he has accomplished God's will. And so we have the transfiguration and we have John the Baptist and we see that God has orchestrated this all. God has been winding the cogs of time to bring about his plans and purposes. And still the disciples don't understand. But they will. So who do you say Jesus is? What do we do with what we've just read? Well, Jesus tells us how we should respond. Go back to verse 34 of chapter 8. Jesus calls the crowd with his disciples and he says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. The first thing that we do as we come to understand who Jesus is, is to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him. What does that mean? What does it mean to take up the cross, to deny ourselves? Well, again, Jesus explains it for us. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? To deny yourself is to lose your life. To give it to Jesus. To deny yourself is not to seek to find salvation on your own terms, to find life on your own terms, but instead to deny yourself. And in the process, we have this great gospel irony, this great contradiction. In losing your life, you will find it and you will save it. So you can hear these words, deny yourself, and immediately you become defensive. Immediately you start running through the things of, what am I missing out on? What am I losing out on? But hear what Jesus says. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. The only way to gain life is by losing it. It, it makes no sense. If you try and think about that rationally and logically, it doesn't make sense. It's like someone coming to you and saying, here's a million dollars. Give me access to all your bank accounts. I don't know. Not a wise decision. Give me your credit cards. It's not a good idea. But Jesus says here, whoever wants to save their life must lose it. And this is the irony about the gospel. This is the contradiction. That the only way to find life, the only way to save life, is by giving it up. Giving it to Jesus. And living for him. 
but then there's the taking up of the cross. And I think the first thing that we need to say here is that this cross is not the same cross as Jesus. Because you can immediately think, Jesus says, take up your cross, and you think about the cross of Jesus. And that is a cross that no one can bear. Because the cross of Jesus is weighed down with the sins of the world. That is not your cross to carry. But Jesus is asking us to take up the cross. What cross? More the cross of suffering, of rejection, and shame. In the Old Testament, to be hung on a cross was to be cursed. The reason Jesus suffers and he is rejected is because he shows us what it means to live for him, to live for God, to pursue the kingdom to live for the gospel. There is potential for suffering and rejection. It's not an easy cross to carry. But at the same time, it's not the same cross as Jesus. Jesus is the only saviour. And believe me, there is the danger that we think somehow we're meant to save the world. Or at least the world around us. Our friends, our family. But that's not what he calls us to do. He calls us to carry a cross that puts us in the same boat as him, suffering and rejected by the world. And he tells us what that looks like. What does it mean to take up our cross? Well, if Jesus says in verse 38, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And again, I want to clarify something here. Because you can hear these words of Jesus and you start rolling through, am I ashamed of Jesus? Or how am I ashamed of Jesus? But to be ashamed of Jesus is a very different thing to be ashamed of Christians and the church. Do you hear that? To be ashamed of Jesus is a very different thing to be ashamed of Christians and the church. They are not the same. And let me tell you, there are some very embarrassing, if not cringeworthy, Christians and churches out there. And you might hear things in the news, you might hear things in the workplace, you might hear things at school, and you just cringe, and you don't want to be associated with them. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Now, there is a fine line. Don't get me wrong, there is a fine line. But don't confuse the two. Right? To be ashamed of Jesus is not to be ashamed of Christians and the church. But we do need to be careful that we don't use that as an excuse. People make mistakes. People do things they don't understand, just like Peter. But we do have to ask the question, am I ashamed of Jesus? Am I ashamed of his words? And more and more, the words of Jesus and Jesus himself is becoming offensive to our world. It's it's there. There's no point denying that. Our world is becoming offended by Jesus and his words. And the question is, are we ashamed of that? 
Are we ashamed that Jesus speaks of judgment? Are we ashamed that Jesus speaks that he is the only way to God? Are we ashamed of how he defines gender and sexuality? Are we ashamed of who he claims to be? Because they will be offensive to people. Now, we may not like them and we may not understand them. We should grow to understand them. But are we ashamed of them? Are we ashamed that God would be so bold to claim truth? And Jesus warns us, if anyone is ashamed of me in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory. Are we ashamed? But let me turn that around as well. How can we honour Jesus? Because it can get very easy to get caught up in being ashamed of who Jesus is. But we can also honour Jesus. How do we do that? Well, one way we honour Jesus is by helping people see who Jesus is. And when those cringeworthy moments come up, to bring people along and say, actually, you know what? That doesn't match up with the Jesus that I know. Can I, can I show you the Jesus that I know? And let me give you a little tip here. You don't have to tell them anything. Just open your Bible and show them who Jesus is. Jesus himself tells us who he is. Lastly, Jesus says, or God says, sorry, listen to him. Listen to him. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. One of the things that we all need to do, or rather, one of the things that needs to happen, it's not something you can do, but one of the things that needs to happen is that we need to see Jesus transfigured in our own eyes. We need to see Jesus for who he is. We need to see the beauty of who he is, the wonder of who he is, the awe of who he is. And it's only then that we can listen to him. So you can strive to listen to the words of God. You can strive to listen to Jesus. But time and time again, the one thing I've found is it is, it is hard. It is hard to hear the voice of Jesus and to listen to him when you don't see who he is. And the beauty of the transfiguration is that the veil between man and God no longer exists. In Jesus, there's no barrier, there's no obstacle, there's no veil that stops us from seeing the glory of God. And the beauty of the transfiguration is that we can. We can see Jesus in all his wonder, in all his beauty. 
And the invitation is there to see Jesus for who he is. Because this call that Jesus gives to his disciples, to people who want to follow him, this call to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him, that's hard. But if you want to take that seriously, you need to see who Jesus is. You need to see that he is worth denying yourself. You need to see that he is worth taking up the cross that is filled with suffering and rejection and shame. You need to see that he is worth following. But unless you see that, that that call to deny yourself and to take up your cross and follow him is hard. And it's, it is. There's no denying that the cost of discipleship, the cost of following Jesus is hard. But here's the thing. When you see who Jesus is, you understand that in losing life, in denying yourself, you will gain life. You'll find life. And so when you see Jesus transfigured in your eyes, the call to deny yourself and to take up your cross, is not much of a cost at all. And maybe that sounds ironic and contradictory and just too hard to comprehend. So how do you start? Where do you start? We start by allowing Jesus to show us who he is. And as we do that, we ask him to reveal himself. It's a wonder that we have this recorded for us. We have these three disciples, and they alone witnessed this transfiguration. And yet Jesus orders them not to tell anyone Why? Because they needed to see who Jesus was. They needed to see him dead and risen from the dead to fully grasp who Jesus is. We live in a day and an age where we have the scriptures kept for us. And it would be easy for us to become familiar with who Jesus is. But as we are once again reminded of who he is, what will you do? Because the question is, the question that Jesus asks of us, is not who does the world say I am, but who do you say I am? And how you answer that question will determine how you live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come now and we ask that you will reveal yourself to those who seek, to those who ask, to those who knock. You say the door will be opened. And so, Father, I ask and I pray that we will seek and that we will knock and that we will find 
the transfigured Jesus before us. Father, help us to come to understand as you teach us through your Holy Spirit of who Jesus is. And as we see him and as we see his glory, we pray that we will hear your voice. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And so we ask for your help. Help to see. Help to understand. Help to listen. And so we ask this all for the glory of Jesus. Amen.